You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Have you heard? The RHISAC Cyber Intelligence Summit is coming to Denver, Colorado from April 9th through the 11th. The summit is part of the RHISAC's mission to help improve cybersecurity across the entire retail and hospitality sector. As a result, it has become the can't-miss event for retail and hospitality cybersecurity practitioners. Join us for three days of professional development and networking with the brightest minds in retail and hospitality cybersecurity. Attendees have access to prominent thought leaders and industry experts and plenty of opportunities for collaboration. For more information and to register, visit summit.rhisac.org. That's summit.rhisac.org. We can't wait to see you in April. This is Luke Vanderlinden, Vice President of Membership at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and this is the RHISAC Podcast. The RHISAC hosts regional workshops throughout the year, anywhere between six to eight of them. As a global, largely virtual organization, we do try to do what we can to get out there around the world to meet our members where they are. But our schedule of workshops for 2023 is over, so why am I bringing this up? Well, I got to go to a few of them this year, including one hosted by Naturin Company in London. And while there, I got to spend some quality time with Natura's CISO, Jonathan Lloyd-White. I asked Jonathan if he could possibly join us on the podcast, and luckily for you and me, he said yes. Jonathan has a fascinating background. He's held CISO and security positions in multiple different sectors, and his work at Natura is guided by a strong corporate identity and mission. We'll chat with Jonathan on this episode in a moment. A little intimidatingly, I'll also be joined by the host of another podcast. He's been doing this a while, Blake Subcheck. Blake hosts a podcast called We're In, about what else? Cybersecurity. That's only one of the hats Blake wears. He's primarily the head of communications at Synac, the security testing company. And if that's not enough, Blake is also the editor-in-chief of Synac's cybersecurity publication, Read Me. So, Since I have a guy whose interest is in the news, we're going to talk about all kinds of current events, what's going on in Russia, what's going on in Washington, maybe even China. If we can avoid causing an international incident, it should be a great conversation. By the way, Sinek is also the title sponsor of the RHISAC Cyber Intelligence Summit coming up in Plano, Texas, October 2nd through 4th. The speaker lineup looks amazing, by the way. Two of the keynotes are Deneen DeFiori, CISO of United Airlines, talking about really how turbulent the last three years have been for United and her industry with COVID, workforce issues, and weather events, and how she's navigated it. Lots of puns in there, I think I intended. Another keynote is Karen Elizari, also known as the Friendly Hacker. She's a security analyst, researcher, author, consultant to security firms, government, Fortune 500 companies. Really, there's nothing she hasn't done. And actually, I got to meet her when I was in London earlier this year as well. I know she's excited about coming to our conference, but anyway, lots of great speakers lined up. Check out summit.rhisac.org for more details, and it's not too early to register. But before we get to those two great conversations, there is some somewhat breaking news that we should discuss. 
At the end of July, the Securities and Exchange Commission voted to enact new rules for cybersecurity governance and incident disclosure by the U.S. public companies it oversees. This, of course, is not a surprise. These rules have been working their way through the SEC for over a year. A first draft was actually issued back in March of 2022. Overall, these rules establish the process and timing by which cyber incidents that are, quote, material, must be reported to the SEC. And they also require companies to report annually on their cyber risk management and governance practices. There are some notable changes, though, from the original draft that was originally published back in March of 2022. The new rules narrow the specific types of information that companies are required to report in response to a material incident, clarifying that a company need not, quote, disclose specific or technical information about its planned response to the incident or its cybersecurity systems, related networks and devices, or potential system vulnerabilities in such detail as would impede the registrant's response or remediation of the incident. That's one. Two, they also narrow the scope of information that companies would be required to report about their cyber risk management activities, removing proposed disclosure requirements related to prevention and detection activities, continuity and recovery plans, and previous incidents, and narrowing the requirements for disclosures regarding third-party service providers. And finally, they modify the requirement for companies to report on specific cybersecurity expertise within their boards of directors, instead requiring companies to report on such expertise within companies' executive management team. Thank you very much to our partners at the National Retail Federation for helping us read through the text of the new rules. Importantly, though, the rules have a pretty tight deadline for when they must be implemented. Disclosure of cyber risk management activities will go into effect for any annual report issued on or after December 15th, 2023, and requirements for disclosure of material cyber incidents will begin on December 28th of this year. That's for most companies. Smaller companies have a little bit longer to comply. As we move closer to that deadline, we will have lots more on this topic. Without a doubt here on this podcast, also at the summit, we'll definitely have a session discuss the implications and ramifications, and of course, discussions will ensue amongst our members on our sharing platforms. But we'd like your thoughts as well about SEC rulemaking or anything else. Shoot us an email at podcast.rhisac.org, or if you're a member, hit me up on Slack or Member Exchange. Now I'm joined by Blake Subcheck, Head of Communications and Editor-in-Chief of ReadMe from Synac. How are you? And welcome to the RHISAC podcast. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on, Luke. So uh, Head of Communications, that's pretty self-explanatory, but tell me a little bit more about your uh, role as Editor-in-Chief of ReadMe. Yeah, so at ReadMe, it's a really unique vehicle for getting out some of the most pressing cybersecurity stories of the day, whether it's big breaking vulnerabilities, policy changes in Washington. Uh, we really cover it all. And I also edit and manage our weekly changelog newsletter, which keeps our readers apprised of all the latest developments in cybersecurity. So it's funny, you know, as, as, as part of that role, I do like to keep my finger on the pulse of uh, everything happening. And sometimes what's old is new again. And, you know, one thing I noticed recently is seeing a lot of, uh, of Log4j, believe it or not, come back up. Absolutely. So yeah, Log4j was uh, one of those things that was kind of sucked all the air out of the room a couple of years ago. And that, it seems to happen once, once a year or so, because we're dealing with CLOP now. But, but tell me about uh, how, you, how you deal with those big headline-grabbing uh, stories. Well, yeah, that one set off quite a scramble, of course, when it first came to the fore in uh, in December 2021. 
And it's really interesting because, as you mentioned, you know, I have a dual hat role as Synac head of communications. So, you know, part of that does entail getting a little bit of a peek behind the curtain at how uh, our members of our Synac Red team of elite security researchers are actually tackling some of these vulnerabilities and finding them in our customers' environments. And, you know, in a recent interview, one of them described uh, that basically that was quote a big party uh, when Log4j broke because it, it was just all over the place. But what's really been interesting in the long run on that story is that the National Cyber Safety Board came out and said that, hey, this is actually going to be with us for years and is an endemic vulnerability now. And so it just keeps coming up again and again. And I saw actually uh, reading through some of the retail and hospitality information sharing and analysis centers, a fantastic response to the Verizon data breach investigations report, uh, that that's been an issue as well of just, you know, seeing this log4j vulnerability uh, that's you know still can still can pose headaches yeah these these things tend to be sticky it's it's a funny analogy a party it's not necessarily a party you want to be invited to certainly not no and of course you know <laughs> on the Synac red team side thankfully you know these are ethical security researchers who are carefully vetted and aren't uh, having a party in any way that's going to damage organizations but are rather uh, really helping everybody fix these problems before they can be exploited with bad actors and honestly from a news perspective looking back I will say you know being a cynical journalist background uh, professional here, I was pretty impressed by the response to Log4j. It actually seemed like critical infrastructure organizations, uh, retail hospitality organizations, there weren't too many headline-grabbing breaches in the wake of that, given its severity and given that just about everybody was affected in some way or other. Yeah, you know, just from my vantage point in our little corner of the world, it was absolutely one of those cases where everybody started working together. Uh, Just the the sharing and collaboration, everybody coming together and discussing and, and solving problems for each other. You know, it occurs to me, uh, maybe we should take a step back and, and tell us about your other hat. Uh, Synac's a great supporter of the RHISAC. Tell us a little bit about what Synac does and its role in our, in our landscape. Sure, absolutely. So at Synac, we do strategic and transformational security testing. And uh, I mentioned that Synac Red Team, and they're really the power that drives uh, our, our platform and our customers' interactions with, uh, with finding the vulnerabilities that matter and making sure that they can again, really be fixed before they actually uh, cause problems or end up getting your organizations in those uh, negative-oriented headlines. So, no, we're, we're really proud to be sponsoring the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center's upcoming Cyber Intelligence Summit. I think that's going to be a really great event. And in fact, uh, our, our field chief information security officer, Wade Lance, is, is going to be engaging there with, uh, with Mark Varner, a VP and, and CISO at Lowe's for what's bound to be a really fascinating discussion on uh, exactly what I just said of, you know, Synac's mission and, and, and uh, enabling a, a resilient security posture with strategic security testing, really elevating the security function to a strategic level where you're actually getting actionable data, measurable information coming through that platform. And of course, they'll be able to talk about it and describe it much better, much better than I could. So I'll, I'll stop there and, uh, and just say, be sure to tune into that conference because I, I think it'll be a really good one. And attendees can stand to learn a lot about how to maintain that proactive posture that, uh, again, worked for Log4j. Uh, Got to make sure it's working for the next big vulnerability to drop. All right, well, let's go back into territory where you are more comfortable discussing, and that is uh, the news in the cybersecurity world. So what, what uh, other than Log4j, what's, what's out there right now that's uh, surprising or interesting to you? Sure. Well, I will say one thing that surprised me recently is related to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? Because we had this just absolutely unbelievable 
unthinkable war break out in Europe here in the 21st century. And we know that Russia has often been a top-tier cyber threat to U.S. targets. And it's been surprising how that conflict hasn't really spilled over. Uh, you know, it's been described as sort of the world's first hybrid war, where Russia's really deploying, throwing everything they can at Ukraine from both a physical and a cyber perspective. And certainly there are lessons to be learned there from U.S. organizations looking at it, but it hasn't had that sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, thinking back to some of the uh, record-breaking ransomware threats that just spread beyond their bounds and the not petcha malware that was really just destructive in nature. We haven't seen that. And, and so that was, that's been a little surprising. But, you know, and also on the geopolitical front, I should add, you know, I don't think that just because we haven't seen those really concrete uh, cyber threats from Russia as much does not mean that organizations can avoid geopolitics. Unfortunately, it's just a it's a reality nowadays that you need to be paying attention to that. Right. So, so what do you attribute, if you can, the lack of the cyber activity part of the Russia-Ukraine war that you just described? This is maybe a, a bit of a spicy take, and of course, keep in mind, caveat: I don't have any special vantage into like intelligence. You know, I'm. I'm my Synax co-founders are both ex-NSA. I have no such pedigree. I got a degree in journalism. But, you know, having followed this space for, for quite a while, I will say I, I, I got to wonder if maybe we didn't overhype Russia's cyber capabilities a bit. You know, they're one of the, the few countries that has demonstrated an ability to cause like cyber physical impacts, to really build some tailored malware and deploy it and succeed and even causing physical disruption like they did when targeting Ukraine's power grid in 2015 and 2016. Right, I was going to say they they did have some successes at least attributed to them prior to their attack. Of course, but then guess what? Last year, they basically just dusted off some of the same malware they tried last time against Ukraine's grid and threw it at them again, and it was pretty easily rebuffed when it came to, you know. So it's either, you know, I think there are two sides to that coin, of course. It's also a testament to Ukraine's defenses that they were able to hold up and withstand some of these assaults. So, you know, maybe people shouldn't rest too easy with the Russian cyber threat, but I do have to wonder if it hasn't been overhyped. You know, that it's interesting that maybe history is repeating itself. I think probably toward the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union was overestimated as well uh, by the West uh, when it was really falling apart for many years before we before we knew that it, it actually did. Uh, we're both getting out way out of our over our skis here with uh, with our analysis of a geopolitical situation. But um, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. So. Um, uh, I guess the other question I have related to Russia Ukraine is do you do you have a vantage point into different sectors? Obviously, retail and hospitality is what we focus on, but is there are there attempts you mentioned um, the power the Ukraine power grid is is the situation different for different sectors? Certainly. And you know it's it's very hard sometimes to disentangle the cyber criminal nexus of the Russian cyber threat from the state backed one, right? And so I would say from a retail perspective, uh, obviously, pretty much everybody these days is operating almost as a financial institution, right? And you have a lot of payment, you know, whether it's processing, whether it's apps, whether it's APIs. You, you know, you're going to have uh, you're going to have some money that might be an attractive target to that criminal element that can ride right along with the state-sponsored threat. So, I would say, you know, putting myself in the shoes of some of your members, that's something that I would certainly be focused on from Russia is who's trying to who's trying to extort me, you know? Uh, a lot of these GRU hackers or whatnot will uh, spend part of the day uh, doing, you know, something on a Ukrainian target set and then maybe try to make a quick buck on the side with some cryptocurrency. And, and that's that's a big danger. Everybody needs a side hustle, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. You got you to gotta support your, uh, support whatever's playing out in Moscow. So Russia, Ukraine is not the only hotspot in the world. I've 
potentially China, Taiwan. Uh, China is uh, one of those bad nation state actors that we know. Uh, anyway, so uh, wh- where else are we? Should we be looking? Oh, well, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head right there. I think every organization worth its salt needs to be thinking about and planning for what could happen if China did invade Taiwan. And this is something that came up at the recent uh, National Security Summit. There was an intelligence summit in D.C. that uh, really brought together leaders of all the major intel agencies, and China was a central theme. Uh, you know, we covered that for Read Me again, where I'm editor in chief, and there was uh, a pervading sense that it's not if but when, actually, which is a little bit surprising to me. Similar to the run up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how U.S. intelligence telegraphed that. I feel like they're kind of telegraphing that now with China, even though it's on a little bit of a longer time frame. And so, I think as as organizations you know, do some of these uh, war games and, you know, tabletop exercises. What does that look like? What does a Taiwan invasion look like? I mean, that's going to affect every sector from retail down to, you know, uh, the global financial networks to, you know, it's it's just going to be immensely disruptive. And we have seen China really, I hate to say, you know, come into its own as a, as a top tier cyber threat to the extent that it's really started to eclipse Russia and all these intelligence estimates. So yeah, definitely one to watch. Yeah, so so you're based in DC, uh, but Synac, of course, is a Silicon Valley company. So, what's your view from Washington these days when it comes to cybersecurity policy versus vis-a-vis retail and hospitality or any sector that you want to mention? Sure. No, it's funny because I'm actually based right down the street from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, <laughs> I'm right in Capitol Hill here, which uh, they have been keeping very busy on the cybersecurity front lately, and. Uh, in fact, just passed a rule requiring that publicly traded companies, including many RHISEC members, uh, really disclose material cybersecurity incidents within four days. Now, four days. What constitutes the rule? F- four days. That's the rule. Now, what constitutes material? You know, how is that going to actually play out in practice? It, you know, is it how is it going to potentially conflict with rules coming out of like the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency that's pursuing a three-day rec- reporting requirement? You know, it's going to be a big Capitol Hill politics policy mess, I think, going forward. And there's, there, it's certainly controversial. Uh, so I've been definitely following that. And, you know, I'll, again, I'll caveat this by saying I'm sure many RHISEC members have their own very capable government affairs teams and, uh, you know, industry groups keeping their finger on the pulse of this. I really do think that that could shake up the way that we see cybersecurity transparency. And, and with some of these incidents coming to the fore, it's going to be a it's going to be a big challenge. I mean, four days is is pretty tight. A lot of organizations are still going to be in the throes of responding to an incident, and they're going to have these these requirements come down. Right. I was going to say, I mean, if, if you were just gathering information, that's tight. But not not to mention the response. You're still going to be in the middle of it. And then you're going to get all the press scrutiny that comes with that. And so it's it's not surprising that there has been quite a bit of back and forth over this. Now. To pivot a little bit, I, I will say that another big news item I've been following is, and that we're all following really frankly at Synac, is this White House National Cybersecurity Strategy and its implementation plan. And that is, you know, sometimes it can be a little hard to quantify developments coming out of DC as far as you have some of these really high-level documents and strategic documents. And it's like, okay, what, what really matters? Where, where the rubber hits the road, how is this actually going to change? Say, again, you know, how I do business as an RHISAC member, uh, what's really going to happen? And I do feel like this one feels pretty different. I, I think you get a sense that 
the White House is really signaling that it's ramping up on the federal side first, and then what follows is potentially on the industry side. And so, uh, I, I, again, if I were in the shoes of one of your members, I would be paying very close attention to how this rollout goes. Um, I will say there are also some unique things, of course, that the White House is positioned to do as part of this plan, um, such as disrupting some of those threats from abroad, right? I mean, cybersecurity companies can play parlor games all day long trying to pinpoint where threats are coming from, but you're not going to actually hack back or arrest anybody. That's that's up to international law enforcement. That's up to the White House. So this, you know, these sorts of plans can really make a difference both on the domestic policy side, but also on the international enforcement and uh, apprehending side. One of the buzzwords that uh, the national office uh, kept using is harmonization. It's hard to say harmonization. Yep. Harmonization. Yep. Uh, what do they mean by that? And how, how do you think it'll affect companies and our members? Well, I think a great example we just talked about, which is the SEC, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission pursuing its own reporting requirement. Well, perhaps CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, pursues another, right? You, you've got to find that harmonization from the federal government perspective, because if you have confusion and you have different agencies doing different things, I don't care if they're independent agencies or if they're, you know, a White House cabinet agencies. They all got to be marching to the same tune or you're not going to get the kind of results you want, which is improving critical infrastructure security, uh, avoiding some of these bad outcomes in, in the cyber world for everyone. It would seem very positive uh, when, when that message came out. But then again, as you say, different message potentially from the SEC more recently. And, and not to mention, by the way, if we want to extend this conversation into privacy laws, right now we have a patchwork of different states making laws and there's still no movement as far as I can tell on the federal level of kind of merging all those laws into one policy. That's a really good point. No, that's that's another just another item on the very small list that we've tackled so far here to pay attention to. Well, I have to say you're uh, you're well rehearsed uh, as a as a podcast guest, and that's because you're also a podcast host. I'm looking at you on video, and you got all the equipment there. So uh, tell us about Synex Podcast and uh, and what you do there, and some of your guests. Yeah, so our podcast is called We're In, like the old hacker mantra. Uh, <laughs> And we feature some of the brightest minds in cybersecurity. And, you know, that includes anybody from renowned journalist and cyber advisor, Nicole Perlroth, to uh, one of my most, uh, one of my favorite recent guests, actually, Corey Ball, who uh, is kind of a specialist in hacking APIs and in API security. And, you know, I, I basically, it's an interview style podcast. So I kind of walk through uh, similar to what we're doing now, and you know, just back and forth and, and really trying to move the cybersecurity community forward and share valuable and insightful information. And, you know, one thing I've learned so much from talking to these people, because again, I, I'm, I'm happy to expound on the Russia, you know, Ukraine cyber threats and whatnot, but ultimately there are so many great people out there with, with just fantastic expertise. And, uh, and Corey, again, of that, uh, uh, author of hacking APIs fame is really one such example. And he just helped me understand this new threat vector that's taken over. I mean, APIs now account for, API calls account for 80 plus percent of all internet traffic, which blew my mind when I heard it because I'm thinking, what the heck is an API on some level, right? Like I just didn't have a good sense of of what this was. And, you know, at Synac, luckily we have SRT members who do understand that, Synac Red Team members, and, and, uh, you know, we have added uh, API testing to our portfolio of offerings. But Corey was really able to, uh, to unpack you know, he used a great analogy, which is like a restaurant analogy, where you go and you you talk to a waiter and you try to get your order sorted, and then they go back to the you know to the cooks and, and back in the kitchen, and then deliver it to you. And the waiter essentially functions as an API, and 
when you have so much going through these APIs, it's become its own beast of a threat vector. And you have you have now the OWASP top 10 just for API vulnerabilities because it's it's being exploited and costing so much per breach. Uh, so I really that was a very illuminating conversation and helped me get a firmer grip on uh, what certainly is is, is going to be a trending issue for for years to come here. Wow. Well, talking about trending issues, topic that comes up quite a bit. How about AI? I'll remove one letter from it. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe this has been beat to death, but uh, give give us your take. No, I I think it's a great question. I don't think it's been beaten to death. I mean, of course, we are in the prime center of this hype cycle with AI, right? I mean, everybody's buzzing about it. Earnings calls are buzzing about it. You know, you just got to have some sort of AI facet. And there's a reason for that. This time feels different, right? We have these incredibly powerful generative AI platforms and programs just seeing widespread use. Honestly, I don't even think we have a firm grasp yet on what vulnerabilities could exist in these. We're just starting to scratch the surface on AI and AI security. I mean, you can get some of these programs to spit out sensitive data that perhaps somebody was accidentally uploading in their own AI prompting. You know, you can get, there are just so many things that we have yet to wrap our minds around. Uh, now, I do know that, of course, the uh, RHISEC members are, are no strangers to the AI trend and phenomenon, and in fact, have been kind of on the cutting edge of this for years. So, for example, I recently visited Indianapolis, and I stayed at a hotel where I'm a member of the uh, loyalty program. And, you know, as I understand it, there have been dramatic improvements to the customer experience in some of these programs based in large part on AI. Again, the large hospitality companies are no strangers to this technology, but it is going to be very important to monitor for vulnerabilities to make sure that you're not uh, delivering something that customers didn't expect or that, you know, the AI uh, comes up with you know some facet of the customer experience that's maybe a little off or feels or feels wrong we're still we're still struggling to wrap our heads around the full scope of some of these tools and uh, you know i don't doubt that the opportunities are just boundless and obviously worth so much more than the risks uh, but i think it's important to recognize that there are risks so tell me for Synac, uh, what do you have next on your on your plate uh, any events where we can meet you i know other than our summit i know you'll be there Mention the summit, and yeah, that'll be really exciting. We are we are also at Black Hat now. I personally, unfortunately, couldn't make it this year, but uh, Synax booth is jumping the shark. We'll say with uh, with literal sharks. So I would definitely encourage uh, any visiting RHISAC members to uh, to swing by and and see them swimming. Uh, I think it's the first time that's been done in Black Hat history, to my knowledge. So or possibly at any show. So you have, you have large tanks with with sharks at the booth, or I, you got to see it to believe it. Okay, yep. excellent. <laughs> we'll be there, but again, not me. Like you, I'll be stuck here on the east coast. Well, I will say I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to kick off the next season of the We're in podcast coming up, and you know, not to steal your thunder here uh, with uh, podcast hosting, steal but away. I would love Go ahead. take it. I would love to have some guests from the retail and hospitality sectors because I do feel like uh, you know CISOs there have such a unique perspective gleaned from, you know, like talk about like casinos, right? Like that's such an interesting security dilemma. I mean, you have, that's where the money's at, right? And so you're going to be targeted by all sorts of nation states, criminals, everybody, uh, you know, uh, hotels, we mentioned Marriott. There's just, I feel like so many of your members are going to be on that tip of the spear, uh, fingers on the pulse of all these cybersecurity trends that I find so fascinating. And I'm so lucky to get to 
really dive headlong into in my day-to-day work. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. But yeah, thanks again for, for having me on the show to share some, of, share some of my thoughts on these wide-ranging topics here. Well, I will agree with you that the guests are what make the shows uh, work uh, and make make the podcast popular. If if someone is interested in in being on your podcast, how do they how do they uh, get in touch with you? Well, you can uh, find me on all the big social platforms. Um, you know, uh, X now, I guess I should say, rather than Twitter. But uh, <laughs> what's the verb going to be, by the way, when you when you post on X? I, you know, that's a good question. I I haven't thought about it, and I hope honestly not to have to think about it too much. Uh, but we'll. We'll navigate that, but yeah, and uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm active on LinkedIn, and and just uh, you'll find me on Synex site too, no problem. So easily found. Well, Blake, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, this is uh, uh, Blake Subcheck, head of communications, readme editor in chief, and host of the We're In podcast, all for Synex. Uh, great supporter of the RHI SAC and the title sponsor of our summit uh, coming up in October. Again, thanks again for joining us on the RHI SAC podcast. Jonathan Lloyd White, great to see you again. It's uh, it's been a while since we were in London together. Thank you very much again for hosting one of our regional workshops earlier this year. My pleasure. Great to see you, Luke. Thanks for inviting me along. So uh, you know, it it seems like you know everybody. You worked in so many different sectors, but tell us about your role at. Uh, let's start with with your role at Natur and Co. Great. Yeah, I've worked in a few different sectors, and I'm very lucky to have done lots of different jobs. But I'm delighted to be part of Natur and Co. Um, I'm the group CISO uh, at the moment. I have around 40 staff based around the world. So I've got a team in San Paolo and London and Warsaw. Um, and I report pretty much directly to the board. I've got a dotted line to the CFO, but uh, spend most of my time dealing with the board, talking to the board, uh, execs and non-execs. A very lucky position to be in. That's that's terrific. We should we should talk a little bit about that because um, uh, reporting structures are different pretty much everywhere these days. But um, like like I said, we we saw each other last month or or in June. Um, you had a mini reunion of sorts with our aviation ISAC colleague Jean Foisson Simon. So, like I said, you worked in so many different places. Tell me a little bit about your history professionally. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, that's right. I used to work in International Airlines Group, where I was the CISO um, for British Airways uh, and Iberia and Aer Lingus and, and other airlines, which are fantastic privilege. Loved that job. Um, but uh, as I said, when we met. Um, I was the most environmental aviation CISO in history because I don't think a single plane took off the whole time I was there due to COVID. So oh, uh, right. yeah. challenging times, but a uh, great industry to be part of. Really enjoyed my time there. And, and where else have you worked before uh, there and, and before Natura? So before IEG, I was a CISO in Sumitomo Mitsui Banking Corporation, so finance sector, corporate bank. Um, I was a CISO for EMEA. Um, really enjoyed working uh, with colleagues from Japan and from New York and being the man in the middle between those two cultures. Fascinating place wow. to be. Yeah. Uh, and really cut my teeth as a, a CISO in a highly regulated industry like that. Um, so, yeah, great, great learning curve for me. And then before that, I was the security director for HM Revenue and Customs, um, which is the UK tax authority, like the IRS in the States. Um, and I was there for four or five years as the security director. Um, uh, and that was my first big security job, really. So fantastic place to learn my trade. Uh, government, government's an interesting animal of its own. Uh, any any brushes with power while you were there? 
Yeah, a few. I had uh, a few uh, frenetic phone calls with the Chancellor due to various uh, japes and scrapes at the time. So one Gordon Brown. Um, so I dealt with a bit with him and, yeah, lots lots of other people as well. So now very lucky. Excellent. Impromptu call with the future at the time, PM. So all on a day's work for Jonathan Lloyd, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was a, a bit of a bit of a tricky situation. I had an incident, and uh, I was actually on a train when he rang to say what the hell's going on, um, and I had to say, "Oh, I'm sorry, boss. I'm on a quiet carriage. I can't talk." So, uh, so <laughs> rules <up>. are rules. <laughs> exactly. Quiet cars are nothing to mess with. People who um, love the more, more importantly, bought me some time to find out what was going on and give them a proper callback. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a moment. So uh, so moving back to where you are now at Natura and Co. or Eco, uh, tell us a little bit about um, their business, uh, their brands, what they do, and, and how they operate now. Yeah, great. Well, it's a, it's a company, I, I must admit, I didn't know much about um, when I started uh, looking for this role. It's a cosmetics company based in, in Brazil, um, very famous in Latin America, uh, very highly regarded brand, uh, Natura. Uh, we're based in 100 countries around the world. We've got Two and a half thousand stores, thirty-two thousand staff, so pretty big. Um, and the brands that I hope everyone will be familiar with uh, that we own include Natura as a brand, uh, Avon, the Body Shop, and until recently, Aesop, another uh, high high-end brand that we've just sold to L'Oreal. So uh, sorry to see them go. Um, so we're now going to be three brands, um, uh, as I say, um, and we're a, a, a fascinating co- uh, company because we're properly purpose-driven as an organization. Um, when you join a new organization, you're never sure whether the marketing is true or not and, and whether it's going to live up to the hype. But what I've found since joining is that, that we really are a purpose-driven uh, organization. So the aims are to drive real positive economic, social, uh, and environmental impact throughout the world. And the slogan, which I love, is we want to be the best beauty group for the world, not in the world. We don't, we're not interested in being the biggest or the best. Uh, except to drive positive change. So really, really um, exciting and, and uh, positive place to work. So, so tell us a little bit about those values. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I always, I often have to correct when we've written out the name of your company because people want to put that space between the ampersand and the CEO. But that's on purpose that they're they're smashed together, right? It is, yeah. And and the very very clever sort of uh, uh, aesthetics uh, and ethics go together. So. We're, a, we're an organization that's really built on relationships. We want to do uh, business in a better way for the world. Um, and yeah, the and co means, of course, Natura and the other companies, but it also means it's about eco. So and in, in Portuguese, Brazilian is e. So that then spells echo. So uh, you've got Natura, echo, reflecting that sense of environment. And, and we've done some really important things in the world. So we are founded on the principles of trying to protect the Amazon, or Natura was founded on that basis. And we have um, procured uh, 2 million hectares of Amazon rainforest in order to conserve and protect it. Um, And what we've managed to do is create a business model where we uh, work with indigenous and local people in the Amazon to harvest in a sustainable way um, nuts and seeds uh, and other plant products that we then use in our in our cosmetics, um, and and what that does is it gives those communities um, uh, an income stream uh, that allows them to be sustainable and therefore protect their livelihood against the loggers and the deforestation um, because they they have that economic economic viability that depends on the 
the sustenance of the forest, uh, sustaining the forest and keeping it there. So it's a real brilliant virtuous circle. Um, and that's just Natura & Co. But the other key brands that you might be aware of, Avon, established 135 years ago. Right. Iconic brand. Worldwide. Iconic brand. Everybody's heard of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, whenever you talk to someone, they said, oh, my mum used to do that. And, and it's the same for me as well. So I think you're quoting me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's, that's what everybody says. And that's a lovely thing to have. Um, but Avon's roots run really deep. It was set up as an organization to give women financial independence um, 135 years ago. So that's truly visionary. And it's still doing that today uh, all around the world. We have 8 million reps and consultants around the world. So a really big organization. And, and our business model is a business-to-business -business, uh, organization. So we sell to those micro-businesses um, who then obviously sell on. So a pretty unique business model and, and really sort of transformational in, in people's lives. So more than just about selling makeup. It's, it's far, far more than that, really. And, and of course, lot, lots of data on, on all, those, all those. Yeah, lots of data. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, that's right. And the other brand I'll just mention, of course, is The Body Shop. And people might be familiar with The Body Shop. Um, again, another iconic brand from set up in the 80s by a visionary leader, um, Anita Roddick, um, in the UK, but now a global brand as well. Um, and that was set up with the aim of doing business in a better way. So transforming the way in which cosmetics are produced um, to stop testing on animals and such like, and, and many other campaigns and positive uh, messages as well. So you can see how these three brands kind of work together as a set. They, they all have real purpose and drive at their heart. And that just shines through in all our, everything that we do. So uh, as I say, we're a relationships built business um, and getting on. Uh, with within and uh, with our ecosystem and our partners is is really key to what we do. I saw an advertisement when I was walking through London uh, that it's a B Corp. So what what does that mean? I wasn't familiar with that term. Yeah, so a B Corp is a, a kind of a, a badge of honour in a way for for having the highest possible standards in in ethics, governance, and social responsibility. So. Um, uh, Nature & Co is the largest B Corp in the world. Um, we're part of the founding group of companies that, that created B Corp. Um, um, and once you start seeing the logo, you'll start seeing it everywhere. It's, it's like a lot of those things. And it's really the, the high watermark of, of what we should all aspire to be as, as, uh, as business people. So really, really good thing to be part of. So when you, when you work, and I've talked with other CISOs who have who work for a company that have a very good set and a, a solid set of, of principles that they run their business around. How does that affect your strategy as you operate the infrastructure security department from a staffing, a strategic perspective, just a management perspective? Yeah, it's been really fascinating. So um, in, in joining Natura & Co, my mission really was to create a single group entity um, around cybersecurity to service all our brands uh, one go. When I first joined, um, uh, there were four separate teams um, who didn't really talk to each other, uh, who um, acted fairly independently, each in a very small way. And, and the mission was really to, to drive the power of the collective um, to work together and, and get much more for, from our, our individual efforts. So very quickly brought together the teams from around the world, shook them up, reposition them to a new structure and in that way have managed to really learn the lessons and drive best practice uh, across the group from all those different teams. So for example I've got um, the former head of security for Natura is now my head of strategy 
And he's, you know, learning and growing about the rest of the brands, but also bringing a lot of the knowledge and expertise and culture from the Turin Code to the other, the other parts of the group. So it's been really fantastic. I feel like we're kind of trailblazing in that um, model for how we want to work as, a, as an organization, bringing the best of each of the group companies together to work on cybersecurity, which is a unifying topic, isn't it? So uh, a really good thing to kind of rally around. So it's worked really well. So based in Brazil, uh, obviously um, worldwide brands, you sit in London, but you have staff all over the place. Uh, you mentioned Warsaw before. So it's, it is truly not only in name and in product, but from your department, truly a global enterprise. So what are the challenges that come with having people sitting all over the place like that? Uh, yeah, well, so uh, just the, the, the usual things around language and around culture and around time zones, all those things uh, make life a little, less, a little more interesting. Um, and those are things that you just uh, have to enjoy. You have to get on with it and, and really sort of uh, enjoy the cultural differences and the language differences and, and work hard at them. So I'm um, very lucky to get my whole management team together uh, in person uh week before last. Um, and it was just fantastic to get together. It's the first time we've all been together in, in a year and a half in that way and um, just really cement those relationships. So, of, of course, um, we spend most of our time there working over over you know, uh, Teams and Zoom, um, uh, and and spend a lot of time making sure we understand each other. I guess that's that's one of the big challenges. But time zones too. So I've had um, uh, people in Melbourne, and uh, you know trying to trying to connect those people emotionally to the rest of the team. Constant issue, constant uh, thing to focus on. That that's fascinating. So um, from a threat standpoint, do you see a difference based on geography or is it more uh, sector specific in your experience? I think it's mostly sector specific. Um, I don't think the, the regions make that much difference. The the, uh, the URL or the, the IP doesn't make that much difference to the attacker, does it? So uh, they will go wherever the money is. So um, I think, for me, the, the threats are pretty global. They're the same around the world. I mean, there are some regional variations, I guess, for people that might attack in Brazil versus in the Philippines or Thailand. But broadly, it's it's, it's immaterial. So the, I think the risks of feel, the threats rather, are feel rather universal. But the risks are different. Um, we have very different IT uh, maturity, cultural maturity in each location. Um, so so the, the risks are different, but the threats are the same, if, if you see what I mean. And, and we, we spend a lot of our time working out how to do things in a standardized group way to drive efficiency, but then meet the needs of the local teams and the local risks. Um, so that's a key, key facet of what we do. And our, our BISO network is really key to how we make that work. You know, uh, we just had a, a great chat with um, a BISO from uh, one of our members on our last episode. Uh, and so, tell me about the importance of of having BISOs at all these all these brands. Yeah, so for me, they're the, they're the kind of translators, they're the, um, the the brokers or the diplomats that manage the group function um, and work for us. They report to me, but they have strong connections friendships, allegiances with each of the business units. And they literally act as, as diplomats, managing the relationship between the kind of holding function, the group function, and and the local people, the local teams. It's a very tough job, very tough job to do, um, but absolutely crucial to our, our model. And I have to say, I'm super lucky to have the visas that I've got on my team. 
um, uh, who manage that that superbly well. So in your case, they're, they're, they serve a, a business relationship function, but also a geographic function as well, because they are where they are? Less so, a little bit, but less so, because uh, each of the brands is global. So it kind of doesn't matter where they sit, because, you know, for Avon, for example, um, uh, Carolina has uh, Avon reps all around the world. Um, so that, that, that doesn't matter so much. It's more connection to the business and the brand that in, in themselves might be global as well. So uh, now that you've um, integrated your teams perfectly, beautifully, without any hiccups at all, and, and you have this distributed workforce covering the globe 24 hours a day, uh, what, what do you see as your next steps and next challenges uh, for your role at Nature? Well, one of the things that we've done over the last year, really, is, is not only build the internal team, but also make sure that we've partnered with the best partners that we can find that fit really well with our organization. So... Um, at the start of this year, we've onboarded a new security operations center provider, um, a new vulnerability management uh, service, a new third-party risk management service, uh, a new identity and action, uh, access management service. Um, so you can see we're, we're just in the early stages of building those long-standing deep partnerships that we will require for years to come. So I, I see my role as, as not only building the internal team, but building the ecosystem of support around the organization and, and really leveraging the best that, that we can get our hands on. Um, so I put a lot of time and energy into to finding the right partners, um, not the biggest, um, not the most specialist, but just exactly the right fit for us who have the same values, the same culture, um, the same ethos as us. And, and really now the job is to make sure that we grow those partnerships together and, and uh, mature as an organization. So um, we measure ourselves against this maturity um, and, and my, my performance, my team's performance is really benchmarked against that, that NIST heading. Um, and uh, I'm doing the same with my partners. I'm, I'm making sure that we're all driving towards that increased maturity and then by proxy risk reduction at the same time. And if you had to get out your crystal ball, where do you see, I mean, you've, since you've had your, your toe in so many different sectors, uh, what do you see as the future of cybersecurity and like, what are the threats that we're going to be talking about a year from now, five years from now? And what are the ways that we're going to have to respond differently in, the, in those times? Oh, gosh, that's a, I, I wish I knew, Luke. I wish I knew. We only have an hour left, so feel free. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, um, well, I always say that security is additive. So nothing ever drops off the end. None of the risks ever go away. You can still get infected through a, a you know a, a USB stick or something. So all those old risks are still there. We just keep adding to them, you know. Um, and of course, the the latest risks are all around uh, uh, exploitation of um, uh, AI and and things like uh, Worm GPT, which is the latest uh, thing to hit the news uh, in the last week or two. Um, so obviously, that's going to be a, a big topic. Um, you can only really see anything but an exponential uh, increase in the speed at which malware is produced and, and attack vectors increase. And I guess we're just going to have to try and keep up with that. Um, no, no change there. I think really, you know, feet on the ground, though, my biggest challenges are the, the organization continually transforming itself structurally, but also in, in moving continually away from old IT platforms and, and moving towards more modern uh, ways of working and and that's what really keeps the job interesting um, up close and personal you know so 
all the projects going on uh, in the business to transform its digital uh, space, its omni-channel approach. All those things are really what I think I'm going to be busy with probably for at least the next 12, um, 24 months. Excellent. Well, don't want to take up too much more of your time because you got to get back uh, being busy with those things. But Jonathan Lloyd-White, thank you very much for joining us on the RHISAC podcast. Uh, Good to see you as always. Um, Hopefully it won't be another year before we meet again, whether it be in London or elsewhere. Um, But of course, I'll see you here on our membership committee. So I'll see you at our next meeting there as well. You will indeed, Luke. Thanks very much. And I really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you very much. Thank you to both of my amazing guests for a great couple of interviews, Jonathan Lloyd-White, CISO at Natura Company, and Blake Subcheck of Synac. If you want to discuss anything you've heard today, or if you have an idea for a podcast segment, or want to be on yourself, or if you want more information about membership in the RHISAC, shoot us an email at podcast at rhisac.org. As always, thank you to the production team. We couldn't do it without you. For the RHISAC, that's Andy Chambliss and Marisa Trashinecki. And from the CyberWire, Trey Hester, Jennifer Iben, and Elliot Peltzman. Thanks as always for listening, and stay safe out there.